This is Muslim Footprints, an opportunity to deep dive into Muslim civilizations through the ages, accompanied by some of the best experts and academics in their field. My name is Aisha Dyer. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this bonus episode of Muslim Footprints. In this episode, we're reflecting back on the stories we've covered so far in our journey and sharing additional insights from our guests. From the founders of the faith to empire builders, from Islam's spiritual underpinnings to its enduring contributions to culture, we've covered a lot of ground. Before we start, I just want to thank you for your tremendous enthusiasm and encouragement. It takes a village to make Muslim Footprints, and almost everyone involved is voluntary or working pro bono. So it's heartening for us to know that we're building a community of engaged, thoughtful individuals who share our passion for learning and making a difference. Each time you share an episode, leave a review or recommend us to a friend, you're helping us reach more people and amplify our impact. Please do keep spreading the word. Without further ado, let's delve into the past five footprints. inaugural episode, we unraveled the life and legacy of Nasser Khosrow, an 11th century polymath and mystic. He experienced a turning point, which led to his transformative pilgrimage across Central Asia, the Mediterranean, North Africa and Arabia, making him one of the greatest travelers of his time. Combined with his profound philosophical insights, Nasser Khosrow's journey through inner and outer landscapes really set the stage for our exploration of the broad footprint of Islam. Our guide was Alice Huntsberger, who has written the most comprehensive study to date about Nasser Khosrow's life. She's such a great storyteller, sharing anecdotes that were sometimes funny, sometimes intimate, that gave us a window into her protagonist's personality. Here, Alice reads and analyzes one of Nasser Khosrow's poems. It's a kaleidoscope of philosophical, religious, and scientific themes. And he's equally thoughtful about structure, using a combination of creative techniques to communicate his message. One of the things we want to consider when we look at a poem by Nasser Khosrow is both the themes and ideas, which are deep and important, but also the structure to see how 
he's structuring it, how he orders the themes and ideas. So I've done an analysis of one of his longest uh, qasidas, 80 lines, in the second book that I wrote, The um, Pearls of Persia, that I edited of many other authors. And in this poem, the first line gives us some clues as to the themes. The steed of speech has the mind as spacious field. Who, what is its rider? The eloquent soul. Craft reins out of reason and saddle from thought on this horse of the tongue in its wide open field. The Persian is Komete Sochenro Zamirast Meidon Savorish Chichizast Jone Sochandon Hiredro Enonsozo and Ishero Zin Bar Aspezabon and Darin Pah Nemeidon. So he begins with this word komate, a very strong K sound, komate, but also the meaning is of a glorious horse. It's a steed. And so a steed that's going to go out with a knight on it into a fighting field. And But this is the komate sochan, the komate of the speech, meaning our speech, our language. And where does our speech come from? And where is this horse running? He says this horse is running on the whole field of the mind. And then he asks a question, a philosophical technique, right in the first um, line. What is its rider? What? He says, who, what is its rider? And then he answers the question, the eloquent soul, meaning the speaking soul our soul inside us that has language and can speak. In line two, he goes to the imperative verb. He says, craft reins out of reason and saddle from thought on this horse of the tongue in its wide open field. So he has already thrown down the gauntlet here in this poem that's going to be about reason and uh, using our minds, and how are we going to do it, and how is it done in the world? Then, when we want to look at structure of this poem, what we could look at first is to see if there's a middle line. So, when we go to line 40, we find this, the word God. God of the world who knows the non-existent, God of this world of cultivation and ruin. So in one line, both halves of the line begin with the word God. And so it's a powerful central pivot point. But look at the what he says is the first one is God of the world who knows the non-existent. So this would be the everlasting God which knows everything that's even non-existent. And the second half of the line is about the God of this world of cultivation and ruin, which mirrors the Aristotelian phrase of um, world of generation and corruption. So he's bringing philosophical themes 
and Aristotelian philosophy into the poem, but also the structure is turning on God, and we want to look to see if the first half is pointing upward to the God that knows all that does not exist, and the second half of what we should do on this world. Then the last point I want to mention about structure and poetic technique is uh, his use of sounds. I already mentioned that the K that begins the poem is a very strong sound, but he repeats this in another section where he's asking a series of questions. Nasser Khosrow is asking a series of questions about how science began and how medicine began. And it's, who knew at the beginning? What do you think that time could be measured in a water clock? Who knew that Jupiter, Saturn, the moon all take their light from the light of the sun? Who knew that the mountains, the oceans, and deserts stand up in the air without any support? Who knew that the area of the sun is 160 times larger, bigger by far than this whole earth of ours. Who first began the blacksmith's art when in the beginning there were no tongs, no hammer, no anvil? Who knew that this bitter, foul medicine, myrobalan, could chase away fever from the human form? Who first prescribed for stomach aches and upsets, take rhubarb from China and fennel from Byzantium? Who was it invented red Turkish ink from powdery red sulfur and aqueous mercury? Who knew that a stone from the mountains of Isfahan would increase the light that comes from the eyes? Who was it esteemed gold more precious than silver all over the world? Who was it whose words made the Yemen carnelian to be valued less than the Badakhshan ruby? So in English, this long series of questions is who, 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 who? But when you change it into the Persian, when you listen in the Persian, it becomes ki. So it's ki donest, ki donest, ki donest, ki donest, ki kad, ki donest, ki farmud, ki bud, ki donest, ki bud, ki bud, ki bud. So the KKK is rattling down the, the, the stones like the horse's hoofs. It's the sound is also very important in poetry because it's being read out loud. It's not just the ideas in a poem that we need to know about, but we need to attend to how the poet is using his full arsenal, his full quiver of arrows of techniques and style and uh, rhythm and rhyme and sound and language. He is using the steed of speech to make this creation. Our second episode was an exploration of prophecy through the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him and his progeny. Our storyteller was Stephen Burge, who, as well as being a researcher in Quranic interpretation, is also a priest. He opened up some really interesting doors. First of all, having a person of faith, well-versed in another faith, is a pretty rare dynamic. 
Stephen is both a sympathetic believer and at the same time has some distance. Then he comes to the topic with some thoughtful angles. For example, he talks about the divine entering the earthly world when the angel Gabriel reveals the message to the prophet and juxtaposes that with the mirage, the prophet breaking into the divine world during his ascension into the heavens. He also observed how when you try and read a religious text with historical eyes, you ask the wrong questions and get the wrong answers. What he's trying to say is that prophecy is not of this world and that's how you should see it. It's so true and so simply put. And finally, he situates Islam in the wider context of the Abrahamic faiths. For example, he shared the story about how the Christian king of Abyssinia protected the first followers of the Prophet from persecution in Mecca, and how it was the Arab and Jewish communities of Medina that welcomed them to set up a home. Here, Stephen tells us how he picked the images for his book about the Prophet, to show how Prophet Muhammad and the nature of prophecy have been understood over the centuries. It was quite an interesting process trying to find 30 or so images for a book on the Prophet Muhammad where we made a decision fairly early on not to include any pictures of the Prophet, even though they do exist, because we just didn't want to go down that avenue. So then we had to try and find some pictures. Uh, and uh, it, a lot of them were found by my uh, editor, a lady called Raisa Akhtar, and we had quite a lot. Of, we actually spent quite a lot of time on the pictures. But that was one of the things I, I really enjoyed about writing the book. Yeah, and yeah, I love the fact that the first picture is actually Charlton Heston. I joke about it, but I was trying to make an important point that actually, you know, prophets and prophecy is something that's deeply ingrained in 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 society and how we view the world from those things like epics, you know, and yeah, films and Cecil B. DeMille and all that. So uh, the first chapter of the book just asks, what is prophecy? Which is, on the face of it, quite a simple question, but is also a really deeply complex one. And uh, part of what I was trying to say was, like, actually, if we look at the idea of prophecy and prophethood in, say, film, like somebody like uh, Charlton Heston, we get this idea of the prophet as a... uh, almost like a superhero come action movie kind of figure. I, I think the first picture I had was of the Noah film with um, uh, Russell Crowe on the front, who is definitely an action hero type figure. That's quite a long way away from what prophecy is actually all about. Because prophecy is about that idea of challenging people to think about their spiritual lives, their ethical lives, and the way they live. And that's what is at the heart of prophecy and prophethood. 
And that's not something that is necessarily conveyed with this sort of action hero prophet you see in Charlton Heston and, and other figures like that. But what's central is that idea of being presented with a choice and having to make changes to life. And that's what's at the heart of, of late ancient and ancient prophecy. And then, but some of the pictures are just, you know, really stunning. My favorite one is the picture of Noah, where the blue is the bluest blue you can imagine. There's also this um, 19th century sort of glass painting, which is just quite an unusual object in and of itself. Uh, but I just love the way it really spoke about the way that people brought the life of the prophet into their daily living, into their house, that they would put a picture of like a stylized image of the mosque in Medina uh, and the prophet's house in painted glass, which was obviously hung on a window somewhere. It was from India in the 19th century. And there was something quite powerful about the life of the prophet being physically in somebody's house. Shainal Jiwa was our guide to the Fatimid dynasty, from its establishment in North Africa to its contributions in governance, architecture, culture. She also described how the Muslim world in the 10th century had multiple centers of power, with the Mediterranean at its heart. You had the Abbasids ruling in the east, in Baghdad, the Fatimids in the south of the Mediterranean, in Cairo, and in the north of the Mediterranean, the Umayyads were back. They were the dynasty that had preceded the Abbasids, but now they were back, ruling the Iberian Peninsula. What happens is that after the Prophet, you cannot have now the same model of prophecy because that is, you know, the, he is the seal of the prophet. But the need for guidance, of course, has to continue. People who are believers have to be guided. So how are they to be guided? So historically, the Shia come to be formed much earlier because they're really around the person of Imam Ali as the guide and then his descendants as appointed by each of the previous imams. So today there are three major branches of the Shia. There is the Zaydi Shia, the Itna Ashari Shia, and the Ismaili Shia. Over time, over almost two, two and a half centuries, eventually what we today call the Sunni uh, model develops. They eventually come to believe that they, the Sunnah of the Prophet uh, which is the teachings, the you know, the 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 way of life of the prophet, is the is the guide along with the Quran. But that development of that idea and the shaping of that idea crystallizes over a couple of centuries. Eventually, they come to be called Ahl al Sunnah wal Jamaa. Ahl al Sunnah, the people of the Sunnah, wal Jamaa, and the consensus of the community. So that's how these two major models come to develop in time. Along the way, there are other models that come up as well, other articulations, other interpretations. For example, the, what come to be called the Kharijis, who call themselves the Ibadis. 
they believe that anyone from the Muslim world, any man who is able-bodied and able-minded can become the caliph. Whereas for the Shia, it is from the family of the Prophet. And for what came to be the Sunnis, initially it was people who were, who were the closest companions of the Prophet and who were from the Quraysh, the tribe of the Prophet. So you can see how different groups of people over time saw this need of guidance and interpreted who had the legitimacy to do so in slightly different ways. Shainal also mentioned during our conversation that the Institute of Ismaili Studies runs a course on the Fatimids in Tunisia. It's called Walking in the Footsteps of the Fatimids, and it's based in the city of Mahadiya, which is where the Fatimids first established a base before moving to Egypt. The streets are still named after the Fatimid Imam Caliphs, and the whole period is recreated for participants as they walk around the city. It was when I read Reza Shah Kazemi's book, Justice and Remembrance, about the spirituality of Imam Ali, that the seeds for an endeavor like this podcast were probably subconsciously planted. It was during the first months of COVID, and I remember thinking that it'd be great to find a way to bring robust scholarship, deeply researched knowledge and reflection and wisdom out of academia, out of niche circles, and make it widely available and easily accessible. Here, we have a clip of Reza talking about the connection between the intellect and revelation. We've come to equate the intellect with reason or being rational. And if we think along those lines, we may wonder if the two are in conflict or consider the intellect as an obstacle to be overcome in the path to achieving union with God or the path to achieving enlightenment. But divine revelation, Reza says, far from cutting short the operations of reason and imposing some unintelligible diktat, on the contrary, presupposes a creative engagement with all the resources of the intelligence. The intellect, the aql, the root of that word means to bind something together. It's what you hobble a camel with. You tie it up and you hobble it down. So the aql is what ties our consciousness to the spirit of God, as opposed to being loosened and let free to roam around in the realms of multiplicity and distraction. And that goes back to the basic meaning of the word religion. Because the word religion is composed of two Latin words, re ligare, that which binds once again. It binds the human to the divine. 
the terrestrial goes back to the celestial by virtue of religion. So the intellect is crucially tied to the revelation of the divine. The divine revelation is what brings to light what is residing in the depths of our own intellect, but it's been buried under the rubble of our second nature, of our fallen nature. Our first nature, what the Quran refers to as the fitra, is the original, primordial, perfect, pristine and pure humanity, the human spirit that is one with that spirit of God that was breathed into us. So that fitra, our true nature, has been buried under the rubble of our second nature, our fallen nature. And we have fallen into two kinds of traps, the trap of heedlessness, forgetfulness on the one hand, and sinfulness and pride and all the vices on the other. So to get out of those those traps, those, let's call them rather prisons, the prison of egotism and pride and the prison of forgetfulness of God. Imam Ali says to us that the buried treasures of our intellect, he calls them dafa in al-uqul, those buried things deep down in our intellect are unearthed. This is what he says. It's in the first sermon of the natural balagha. And in, in that sermon, Imam Ali is describing the purposes of revelation. Why is it that God sent these messages to mankind through these different messengers, these human beings who were his prophets and his spokespersons? Uh, why did he do this? Imam Ali gives, and here I go to something else that Imam Ali said in another part of the natural balagha. He said that the, the Quran is that which, by means of which, we will come to see and to hear and to speak the truth. The ultimate realities will become visible, audible, and expressible for us. So this is when revelation and intellection, let's call it, for, for want of a better word, to use our intellect properly. And that process of activating and deepening the intellectual resources that are buried deep in, our, in, in the spirit of our humanity, that process is all brought into being by revelation. And that's how revelation and intellection are complementary harmonious and they presuppose each other each requires the other for its fulfillment and finally we had muslim sicily our guests Bill Granara and Nicola Carpentieri told us why the Normans were known as the baptized sultans of Sicily, how Al-Andalus was the Hollywood of its time, and how the influence of Islam in Sicily extends beyond monuments 
and food to culture as we understand it today. Here's Bill Granara giving us some color about the final years of the Sicilian poet Ibn Hamdis. Of course, traveling at all this particular time takes a toll on a person. We have to remember he's traveling on horseback or on mule, wherever he's going. And there's a lot of dust. And we know at the end of his life, he had uh, problems with trachoma or some kind of eye diseases. And he became blind in one eye. I think he probably lost a lot of sight in the other eye as well. This is traveling in the sand. And we know in medieval medicine that lots of people, lots of Arabs suffered um, eye diseases, probably because of the dust in the sand. Uh, he also, um, he, he became somewhat limp and, and lame in his old age as well. Again, walking and, and etc. He lived to be over 80 years old, so he lived a long life. Um, but uh, how I see his, um, um, his, what we would call his zot, are his aesthetic poems, and he was facing his immortality. And he was going back and thinking about all of these existential verses of fate. Um, he evokes God, he evokes God's blessing because he is a Muslim. But the question of him being, you know, uh, withdrawing from the world was never the case. Until his dying day, he kept up with what was going on in Sicily, and he was writing about Sicily, and he was cursing the Normans for taking over his country. He was always very, very... Um, actively, intellectually, and poetically or professionally committed uh, to writing about Sicily and bemoaning its loss. There's a lot of different ideas that where he was buried. I find it very, very difficult that an 80-year-old man who's blind and limp um, is going to go across the Mediterranean one more time to be buried in the Balearics or, or you know, Ibiza, whatever the, the places people say that he did. I, I just don't, I, I don't, I don't get it. Um, I think he was probably buried very locally. Um, but um, we, it's only conjecture. Our journey through the footprints of the Muslim world is far from over. We'll be back at the same time in a couple of weeks with a new episode. You may know our schedule by now. We publish every other Tuesday. So stay tuned as we continue on our illuminating expedition and one that's full of surprises. Muslim Footprints is developed and produced by Kalima Communications in partnership with The Ismaili. Our theme tune is Mola Mahmoud Jan, performed by Black Heat. Please review, subscribe and share with friends and family. Thank you for joining us and see you next time. <laughs>